morning. I'm Kevin, I'm one of the pastors here, and this is Eleanor. Now a couple of months ago, the battery on her invisible fence collar died. It looks like this. Now you probably know how an invisible fence works. The collar will beep if Eleanor gets close to the boundary wire that's buried around the perimeter of our yard. If she gets even closer, then the collar will give her a gentle electric shock as a reminder to stay in the yard. And all of that works great if the battery on the collar isn't dead. Now, the first clue that we had that the battery had died was the sight and sound of Eleanor racing into the street at full speed towards some neighbors and their dog all out for an afternoon walk. Now, Eleanor's a sweetheart, but she's a big dog, she runs really fast, and she has a deep, loud bark. If you didn't know better, and you saw her running at you and barking, you would figure you were in trouble, especially since that day she wasn't wearing her festive and disarming sombrero. So I raced out of the yard and I yelled at Eleanor to stop. The neighbors, who I didn't know, yelled at Eleanor and then yelled at me, something like, sir, would you mind please keeping your dog in the yard? It's quite disconcerting, but with much more energy and some more colorful language. Then, they went on their way home, and I went back into the house and ordered a new battery and a replacement. Now, I'm telling you this story because of what happened later that day. My son Rob and I were walking in the neighborhood, and we saw those neighbors out working in their yard. So I introduced myself, and I apologized for the incident, and I made sure that no one had been hurt. Then I deflected their apology by acknowledging, hey, I thought their response was totally appropriate given the circumstances. I probably would have done the same thing. And then we shook hands. I shook hands with the neighbor. Rob shook hands with the neighbor. The neighbor shook hands with Rob and with me. We shook hands because that's what you do when you're making a new friend or reconciling a wrong. Then, at exactly the same moment, all of us realized that it was the first time that any of us had shaken hands with anyone in several weeks. I walked home with my hand out like this until I could sterilize it with Purell. Well, that incident got me thinking about the effects of social distancing during this global pandemic, specifically about the lack of touch that we're all enduring. Under normal circumstances, we touch each other a lot, handshakes and high fives, hugs and pats on the back. One of my favorite moments in working with high schoolers here at the church is standing at the entrance to the activity center and high-fiving 200 high schoolers as they enter for Sunday night services. It's awesome. But now we're encouraged or required not to touch. And that physical isolation can have some negative effects. According to WebMD, physical touch can calm the nervous system and boost the immune system. Touch increases the release of oxytocin. It's a hormone that signals well-being and calm, and it decreases levels of cortisol, the major stress hormone. Hugs and handshakes have been shown to lessen pain, improve healing, improve mood, lower blood pressure, and reduce stress, anxiety, depression, and loneliness. And it also reduces the feelings of isolation. Touch is good for you. In the past few months, I've seen several articles that have been written on a condition called touch starvation or touch deprivation. And most of the studies in the past have focused on the negative effects on babies who have been deprived of touch when they were infants. But with the pandemic and social distancing, 
Researchers are starting to look more closely at the effects on adults who go without physical contact, especially for long periods of time. One study from the Texas Medical Center was titled, Touch Starvation is a Consequence of COVID-19's Physical Distancing. And another from WebMD is titled, How to Cope When COVID Steals Loving Touch and Hugs. So going without touch may be necessary during this time. I personally think that it is, but it's not good for you. This morning, we're continuing our series called The Power of Small, where we look at specific small incidents in Jesus' life and ministry. And today we're considering the power of a small touch and looking at an episode that focuses on a woman who had gone through a long illness and a resultant lack of touch. But before we dive into scripture, let me give you some punctuation trivia. The first recorded use of parentheses was in the 14th century. Now I tell you that because if parentheses had been around in the first century, I suspect that Matthew, Mark, and Luke might have employed them when inserting the account of the woman with the long-term illness into their narratives. All three gospels place this incident in the middle of the story of Jesus traveling to heal Jairus's daughter. Now I'll point out where I think the parentheses might go when we get there. We'll look at the passage from Mark's gospel, chapter five, beginning in verse 21. It's the longest and it tells us the most about the woman. So Jesus had just cast a legion of demons into a herd of pigs, and he'd been told by the townspeople that he should go away and leave them alone. So Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake, where a large crowd had gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Because that's what daddies do when their daughters are sick. They will chase any hope for healing that they can think of. So Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. Open parentheses. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Now, if you're familiar with the story, then you probably heard that because the woman was constantly bleeding, she was also constantly unclean according to Jewish law. Leviticus 15, 25, clearly says that she is ceremonially unclean as long as the bleeding continues, even if that's 12 years. Among other things, that means that she's not allowed in the temple and that her husband isn't allowed in her bed. No one could touch her without becoming ceremonially unclean themselves for 12 years. So what intrigues me about this woman is that she seems very, very alone. There's no father like Jairus to advocate for her and to plead for her healing. There's no husband mentioned. And Mark makes the point that she has spent everything she had to pay for the doctors. One author points out that this money paid to doctors in hope of healing might have been a divorce payment called a ketubah. Now, a ketubah is an early Jewish prenuptial contract 
that's described in the writings of the Sanhedrin around the time of Jesus. Remember, when Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees, they wanted to know about the certificates of divorce, and they really challenged him there. Apparently, some of the Sanhedrin held that prolonged sickness was grounds for a man to divorce his wife, to pay her the agreed-upon price, and then send her on her way. This was a hotly debated legal topic in that day. Now, I'm not saying that this woman had been abandoned by an unloving husband, but the fact that this was considered acceptable by some Jewish leaders at that time helps us to understand how they might have treated a woman with a long-lasting illness and why she might have been very alone. In any event, it's clear that this woman is in the crowd alone. She's exhausted her financial resources and she's still getting sicker. Let's pick up the story in verse 27. She had heard about Jesus. So she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Now, I've heard it said that fear is the anticipation of a bad or negative outcome. We're afraid that something terrible is going to happen. And hope is the anticipation of a good or a positive outcome. We'll do something because we hope that something good will happen. Faith then is acting in hope despite the fear. This woman, alone and broken and poor, demonstrates tremendous faith in Jesus. And it's tempered by the fear that keeps her hidden and silent and a little bit sneaky in the crowd. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples looked at him and said, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? Now the parallel passage in Luke is very similar to Mark's with a couple of exceptions. Luke tells us that it was Peter who boldly told Jesus that his question didn't make any sense. I think that's so Peter. The other difference that I find somewhat amusing is that Luke, who's a physician himself, leaves out the part about the doctors making the woman worse. But Jesus' question, who touched my robe, didn't make any sense to the disciples or to the crowd around him. But it made perfect, terrifying sense to the woman. She has been found out, and Jesus won't let it go. She's been healed, but the best is yet to come. Let's take a look at verse 32. But he kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, your suffering is over. If you search the scripture, you won't find another instance of Jesus calling a woman daughter. Only this woman, alone, sick, and penniless, but alone no longer, daughter. The gospel 
is the account of Jesus redeeming the lost who come to him in faith and restoring the relationship between God and the men and women that he created. And that redemption and restoration happen here in this parenthetical moment in the crowd. Daughter. Close parenthesis. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Now, the timing of this is too good to pass up. Jairus is just receiving the horrible news that his daughter has died. But Jesus tells him not to fear, just have faith. Don't you think the fact that Jairus had just seen Jesus heal a woman and commend her for her faith had an effect on the balance of hope and fear in Jairus' heart? Of course. I think this is another reason that Jesus wouldn't let the healing go in secret. Seeing Jesus work in the lives of others builds our faith. Then Jesus follows up that assurance by going to Jairus' house and raising his daughter from the dead. I wanna spend the rest of our time this morning on how this passage applies to us in 2020, in the midst of a global health crisis and the, as the church and as followers of Jesus. But before we get to applications, I wanna clearly remove one possible and common misapplication. The idea that if we only have enough faith, we will be healed or conversely, that if we're sick and not healed, it's because we lack enough faith. Now, the apostle Paul wouldn't back up this application. Paul had an amazing touch from Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. That touch and Paul's lifelong pursuit of Christ's will and way resulted in Paul going blind, being excluded from the Pharisees and being doubted by the disciples. He was beaten, stoned, jailed, shipwrecked and snake bit. And despite tremendous faith, and his constant, consistent prayer for healing from his thorn in the flesh, God didn't remove that thorn. And instead, he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. A good friend of mine who had prayed for the healing of her 11-year-old daughter told me that she clearly felt God say to her, I could heal your daughter today, but then she wouldn't become the woman of God that both you and I want her to be. God works in our trials and in our weaknesses. In fact, sometimes it's his best vehicle to grow us and disciple us. 15 years later, her daughter is following Christ and engaged to a godly man. Her daughter says that she wouldn't go back and change that difficult time because God used it to conform her to his will. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. James is clear that if we're sick, we should pray. We believe that at first free and we pray often for healing. But a lack of healing doesn't necessarily mean a lack of faith. In fact, it could be God's personal, perfect plan to draw you closer to his side like the long illness drew the bleeding woman to Jesus. We're talking about the power of a small touch. In the woman's encounter with Jesus, one small touch of the hem of his robe was transforming. Well, what does that look like for us today? 
Let's consider two possible situations. The person who is sick and the person who cares for a person who's sick. If you're like me, from time to time, you can identify with both of those situations. Philosopher and writer Susan Sontag wrote an essay called Illness as Metaphor. These are the opening lines. Illness is the night side of life, a more onerous citizenship. Everyone who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the healthy and in the kingdom of the sick. Although we all prefer to use only the good passport, sooner or later, each of us is obliged, at least for a spell, to identify ourselves as citizens of that other place. Sontag's point is that none of us gets to completely escape sickness in our lifetimes. If, in addition to physical sickness, we add emotional and psychological suffering, like anxiety, depression, and isolation, the number of us that find ourselves as citizens of that other place grows very large. And many of us are suffering over long periods of time and doing so largely in silence. Now, back in the mid-1800s, the composer George Frederick Root wrote his encouragement in the form of a hymn, and he called it, I have touched the hem of his garment. I'd like to sing it for you, but I won't. You're welcome. I will read the first verse and chorus. She only touched the hem of his garment, as to his side she stole. Amid the crowd that gathered around him, and straightway she was whole. Oh, touch the hem of his garment, and thou too shall be free. His healing power this very hour shall give new life to thee. If you're suffering and you desire to touch the hem of his garment, how do you do that? Well, first, I think that many of us try to do it in secret, like the woman in the Gospels. We carry our burdens by ourselves. We suffer in silence. We pray that God would heal us or free us from our burdens. But at the same time, we let the suffering separate us from the relationships around us. This woman spent 12 years in a ritually enforced isolation, and she sought healing from Jesus in secret. So it's interesting that Jesus wasn't content to leave the healing in secret. He asked, who touched me? Now, I personally think that Jesus, who knew the secret thoughts of the Pharisees and who knew the secret plans of his betrayer, probably knew who the woman was that touched him. I think he asked this because he has an additional blessing in store for her, the restoration of relationships. He calls her daughter. As we seek Jesus, we are created and commanded to do so in community. Here's that passage in James chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And notice that this is done in the context of the church. The elders and each other play key roles in these instructions. 
If you're struggling with an illness or a challenge, please don't suffer alone. Reach out and touch the hem of Jesus' robe in the person of a brother or sister in Christ. Now, in the past, I've worked with a number of consultants and coaches. And one of the questions that they often ask when they're talking to CEOs or executive directors is, what keeps you up at night? It's a way of asking the biggest, about the biggest concerns that a leader has. Well, I sleep pretty well because my hope, my anticipation of a good and positive outcome is in Christ and I'm confident that he's already come through. But one of my biggest concerns during this pandemic is that people in our congregation might become less and less connected with each other. And especially at this time when we really do need each other. Let me show you what I mean. Michelle Lehman in our church office has looked at the number of people that we know the church connects with or touches on a monthly basis. These touches include attending a group, printing a name tag. Do you remember when we used to do that? Checking into student ministries or kid connection or giving a financial gift. Now in January, before the pandemic hit and changed how we're doing everything at the church, we counted 1,500 37 individuals that were connected in one or more of those ways with First Free. In July, five months of COVID impact, that number was 1,050 individuals, nearly 500 fewer people that we can confirm connection with. Now, we can't tell how many more people are watching online that don't show up in one of those other ways. And we know that a big part of the decline is related to the fact that we're not doing any children's ministry in person right now. The point is not to count and track. The point is for our congregation to stay connected, especially when the circumstances of our world are pulling in the opposite direction. The touch of Jesus often comes at the hands of others. Jesus taught us this when he told the faithful, I tell you the truth, when you do it, visiting and caring for the sick, for example, to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you're doing it to me. Now, now is not the time to become less connected with each other as a church family. Now, this is a good time for me to give a shout out to all the group leaders and group members that have put in the extra work to keep their groups connected during this time. And to the dozens of leaders in student ministries and Kid Connection, and men's and women's ministries who are working to stay engaged and connected with their people. There are some great things going on and those touches matter a lot. So what if you're not sick or suffering right now? What if you're currently traveling under the good passport? I think Jesus' words speak directly to us. We should be active in reaching out and touching those around us who are desperate for the touch of Jesus. And while this may have to happen with masks and social distancing for the time being, it has to happen nonetheless. We all need to tune our radar to see those in need around us. A few weeks ago, I met someone for the first time. And when she found out that I worshiped at First Free, she asked if I knew John Richardson. Then she told me this story. A few years ago, she had been deeply hurt by a ministry conflict. And John knew a little bit about the situation. And so have, after having a short business meeting with this person, John asked permission to ask a question. By the way, that phrase, can I ask you a question, 
is a very gracious way of going deeper than just the surface level. So John asked her if she'd been able to reconcile with the former ministry partners. Minutes into that conversation with John, she was in tears and experiencing the first steps of healing for a wound she had carried alone for months. By asking a caring question, John touched a hurting person in the name of Jesus. And when I asked John if I could have permission to share this story this morning, he said, absolutely. In fact, he thought it was a good example because when he asked the question, he didn't think it was a big deal. He didn't know that Jesus was going to use that question to start somebody on a path of healing. So what are we gonna do with this? I just finished reading a book called Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg, and it's got some great tools about building desirable habits and decreasing the undesirable ones. But one thing that I learned from that book is that we're all really good at making big commitments that we don't follow through on. In fact, the bigger the commitment, the less likely we are to follow through. So as we finish, I wanna invite you to make a small commitment, a very small commitment in fact, one that you're very likely to follow through on. This morning, I want you to write down one name. That's all. If you're suffering and alone and you need a touch, write down one name of one person you would consider sharing your struggles with. That's it. Just write down the name. Faith is acting on hope despite the fear. If you're currently doing well, then write down one name of a person that you know or suspect might be struggling. That's it. Just write down the name. Let me acknowledge that many of you who are struggling won't let that stop you from caring for others. In the midst of your pain, you reach out to those around you who are also struggling. I love that. Now, all I want you to do with that name is to pray and to ask God what the next step is for you and this person. God knows what the right touch is. Before we close, there might be someone that is in need and can't think of a name to write down. Let me encourage you to go to efree.org connect and use the online connect card to request help or prayer or to schedule time to have the elders pray for you. Caring for each other in times of need is one of the important things the church is for. And know that I'm praying for each of you as you open yourselves up to the touch of the Savior through the hands of your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the way that it gives us a deeper understanding of how you love us and how you work in us and through us. And I pray this morning that as we have written down names or will write down names in a few minutes, that you would direct us, that, we, that you would use us as your hands and feet to touch those that you love, who are suffering or who need encouragement. God, I pray that you would get all of the glory and that the smallest of touches could be used by you in the biggest of ways for those children that you love. We give you all of the praise in your name, amen.